Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now to get into uh, a really light topic this morning. Um, we are talking about toxic church culture. And when I said a light topic, I was being facetious. You were supposed to giggle and you didn't, so I'm gonna make it really clear. I don't view this as a light topic. Um, when I considered this topic as a topic we're gonna talk about, this is not a one-off topic. This is sort of a series we're talking about, and so, um, I'm bringing you the word, but on any one given week, this is not something that I expect you're gonna walk out the door with and go, man, I feel great this week. This is sort of the overarching series you're gonna walk away with and go, that was really hard, but I am glad we talked about that. I hope we don't have to talk about that again anytime soon, but I'm glad we talked about that, okay? Why this topic? Why are we talking about church toxic culture, church abuse? We're talking about it because it matters, because it happens, and it happens a lot. We're not talking about it because there's something happening in our church. I wanna make that really clear, all right? There's not something that's happening in our church right now that I'm aware of, and this is like my way of leading up to like confessing something. I'm not, that's not what this is, okay? I wanna talk about this because, as I shared with you last week, there's been Uh, some either mentors of mine that have gone through some things. Um, There's been some folks who, like when I worked in camping ministry and youth ministry, who were people that I cared about, who came up through either my youth groups or came up through the camps that I worked at, who then went on to become uh, staff members at churches and they were abused. Uh, And so this topic has just come to mean a lot to me and it is worth talking about, because whether it is at this church, someday down the road, when I'm, when I'm here or when I'm not here anymore, or when you are not at this church and you're somewhere else down the road, you need to be able to recognize either church abuse or toxic culture, okay? Um, that is something that, yeah, you just, if we don't talk about it, you may never know what it is. It's too easy for it to kind of go under the surface. If, if somebody never tells you what a shark fin looks like, you might always think it's a dolphin. Until jaws. And then you're, you're in trouble because it just bit your boat in half, right? All right. Um, uh, Randy, there's one slide in my sermon. Can you put my one slide up? Well, I can't read that. And I'm just, I'm kind of proud of this, and it's silly. Jeff helped me with this. I'm just gonna put this up, and I'll, I'll just describe it. This is my outline for the sermon today, and they're all song titles, okay? So then you know how, what I have to do, what I'm going, okay? So these are all song titles, and that's it. I'm just, it's the only slide. So now you know where we're going. Um, now we're getting into it, okay. 
The Apostle Paul wrote a couple of letters in the New Testament called, we call them the pastoral epistles, and the word epistle is just a fancy uh, word that means letter, so pastoral letters. Two of those are 1 Timothy and Titus, and uh, those are letters that are describing how to be a pastor or how to um, be a church leader. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, Paul tells us that leaders in the church should be above reproach. Now, that's something that you probably have heard mentioned at some point. If you've spent any time in church over the years, you may have heard somebody reference you should live a life that's above reproach. Church leaders should be above reproach. What does that mean? Above reproach. Reproach means um, disappointment or disapproval. So if you and I were to read that in English, reading our Bible in English, we get the idea that a church leader should live in a way that, go, that is beyond disappointment. If you're a church leader, you should live in a way that isn't going to disappoint other people, which means like you should live and go beyond the extra mile. That's the sense I would get if I'm reading my Bible in English. And so I would think then that a church leader should be a person who is mature enough to know that just because something is permissible doesn't mean that something is beneficial, okay? Just because something is permissible doesn't mean something is beneficial. And Paul says that in Corinthians. That's just another piece of scripture I'm taking from another book of the Bible, another letter that Paul wrote. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. That's what I'm reading when I read it in English. But I also know that English is not the first language of the Bible. So the question that I have to ask myself when I'm reading this book is, I read it in English, is that also what it means in Greek? Okay? So, is that a fair understanding? What do you think? Do you think, in your knowledge, that a church leader living above reproach should be someone who's willing to go the extra mile, and just because something is permissible, they understand that doesn't mean it's beneficial? You can nod your head, you can shake your head. What do you think? Okay. Yes. Yes. In the Greek, it's even stronger. The Greek word there is anapolitos, and it's a word that we translate, it's, it's, you know, the we word, the, excuse me, it's a one word in Greek, but it means above reproach, two words in English. It literally means you can't lay a hold of, okay? You can't lay a hold of. So think, think MC Hammer, and you can't touch this. Dun, 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 dun. Can't touch this, dun, dun, dun. right? Okay? That's like what that Greek word means. That's how a leader is supposed to act in church. So if an accusation is made against a leader, then that leader should be living a life where they can say, that's fine. I will step down. I'll submit to the investigation. I have nothing to fear because I'm living above reproach. The accusation can't lay a hold of me because can't touch this. Da, na, na, na. Right? Okay. So, and that's not like, that's not a person who is like throwing it in the face of anything. It's just a person who has confidence in the way that they're living because they're living in a way that's above reproach. Another way that you might be able to think of it, another like maybe a modern way to translate that for like an action movie junkie would be bulletproof, right? How do you live a life that's bulletproof? Um, 
And I've thought about this a little bit. How can you be bulletproof in your life, especially as a leader in the church, whether you're an elder, a deacon, a pastor, um, you're a Sunday school teacher, or you're a, a youth pastor, you're a children's worker, how do you be bulletproof or can't touch this? So like um, Billy Graham had a rule. The Billy Graham rule is a well-known thing. And his rule was, I don't give rides to people of the opposite gender in my car. Okay, that was a rule he always held the whole time he was in ministry. And so that's something that we call the Billy Graham rule. Uh, I had a conversation with uh, one of my lawyers once because we were talking about church and how do you protect yourself. And like our church has security cameras that focus on all the doors of the church in case someone ever to break in. So all the security cameras are always focused on the doors, which is great. But what happens if something, uh, you know, an accusation is made in the stairwell, right? And I asked my lawyer that. And he said, well, don't get caught in a stairwell. Well, sh- sure, right. I was like, well, what happens if an accusation is made in a stairwell? He's like, well, don't get caught in a stairwell. Like, like run away from a stairwell. And I'm like, well, people think I'm rude. He's like, well, would you rather think people think you're rude or have an accusation made? I'm like, okay, fair point, I guess. Like, run away from a stairwell, you know? But security cameras, um, having more than one person in supervisory roles when there are staff members, like multiple people on staff members in churches. So if you don't feel comfortable going to this supervisor, then you can go to this other person as a supervisor when you're in church. Um, having church boards and leadership teams intentionally check on a pastor's marriage or offer supportive gestures like weekends away or tickets to marriage retreats. I, I'm on the board of our Atlantic Conference, which supervises our bishop, and that's one of the things that we just did for his marriage was offer some supportive gestures for weekends away or tickets to marriage retreats. Um, do some outside consultants that prepare organizational health reports. That's one of the things that the Southern Baptist Convention did that found all those like 400 or 600 names of pastors that were accused of abuse that are still pastors. Um, staff reviews, which we're gonna talk about later this morning. Counseling sessions, uh, putting accountability, policies and procedures in place to provide accountability structures. And that last one, boom, accountability, that is a big one. You can provide all of the care in the world that you want to people who are on church staff, pastors who are on church staff, but if you aren't providing accountability, then you are not providing a place where there isn't a toxic culture. Accountability is key. If there isn't accountability, then there is no protection against toxic culture. Now, and so hear me. If you have ever been a part of a church and you can get a look at the structure of the church and there is no accountability for the pastoral staff, there's a problem. If you are planning on going to a church someday and you're trying to check out this church and you find out that there is no accountability for the top tier of the pastoral staff, there is a problem. Accountability is key to making sure that there is not a toxic culture. And we're gonna talk about Willow Creek in a little bit. Willow Creek is a big church in Chicago that went through a pretty big problem in 2018. This is one of the problems that they ran into because at the highest levels, there was no accountability, okay? Many times we end up in a place that we had no idea that we were in. Zero idea that we were in. This box right here. 
I moved into my house a couple years ago. This box was in my house when I moved in there. I must have walked by this box in the last couple years 60 times. I have no idea what this box is. It's a whole bunch of sticks, and there's a couple other things that stuck in this box. Uh, clearly, some of this plexiglass or whatever. I, you know, I found my own use for some of these sticks. I, I lay them out, and when I do projects and stain some wood, I use those to dry the wood on so that I can get airflow around the whole thing. But other than that, for the life of me, I can't figure these things out. And you know, like, they have like some little knobs on them too, and I think they must fit into something. And I've walked around my house trying to see where they might fit. I, for the life of me, I can't figure out what these things are. And it's a, it's a whole box of them. So the previous owner must have kept those things for a reason, right? I mean, they're important. But anyway, I, I could never figure it out. A friend of mine stopped by this week, and, uh, and he happened to be walking by the box with me. And I said to him, I'm not sure what these are. I finally had it up to here. I'm going to throw them away. I said, I'm sick of moving them in this box that's covered in, in all kinds of dirt from spot to spot to spot. I've just been working around them forever, and uh, I just can't figure it out. And so he walked over to them, and he picked them up, or he picked up, he picked up one of them, and he starts, you know, spinning this over in his hand. He's like, huh, I don't know what that is. He picked up another one, spinning it over. And I swear, again, I'm going to tell you, I walked by this thing 60 times, I found my own uses for these things. 45 seconds, he looked at these things. And he goes, you know what this is? This is a piano. I said, a what? A piano. I said, no way. He said, yeah, look, if I start putting them together, it's a piano. He said, you gotta be kidding me. Sure enough, some of them are white, some of them are black. There's little numbers in here. I started putting the numbers all together, putting them side by side. I put a piece of tape on it so I could bring it here this morning to show you. But this, this is a piano. I didn't know. Two years, two years I've moved this box of junk around. I've used that for my staining projects. I don't think I started any fires with it but I've thought about using it as kindling. <laughs> 45 seconds, my buddy walked over, picked it up, put two of them together. He's got about as much musical talent as me, <laughs> and he figured out it was a piano. Sometimes we have all the pieces, and we have no idea what we have. Sometimes we've been living in the toxic thing and we don't realize it until somebody else comes along and they point out what it is that we have, okay? It's like the pictures that we looked at last week at the beginning of the sermon. It's so hard, like when you see it's a vase and somebody else sees it's two faces, it's so hard to see the other thing sometimes until somebody else points it out to you. But here's the thing, now I can't not see that it's a piano. And when I brought that box in this morning and put it up here and just let it up here and I saw people walking around it, I kept thinking, everybody's gonna see that that's a piano. They're all gonna know it's a piano. And they're all gonna come up and be like, hey, why is there a box of piano parts sitting there this morning? They're all gonna know. It's not gonna be a surprise. I can't unsee it now, all right? I can't unsee all the work that's ahead. <laughs> 
okay? That's the way it is, though, with toxic culture, with, with problems in church, too. Once somebody kind of opens our eyes and we start to see some of the problems that exist, we can't unsee those things sometimes. And then what we end up seeing is, oh, there's a lot of work ahead. Oh, there's some things that we have to change. The culture that we live in, the culture that we worship in, teaches us how to behave and how to think. We learn right and wrong, good and bad, by living in a culture that defines these things. So last week I told you the story about the KKK guy, right? The guy that grows up in that culture has been taught by that culture what is right and wrong, good and bad. It's really hard, until, and unless that guy has had so many experiences to tell him something that's alternative to that, to really blame him for thinking what he thinks, right? When you have people that grow up in a toxic church culture, it takes an entirely new way, a new perspective to show them something different. But I guarantee you that if I take all of these pieces and start putting them in order with all these numbers, there's something totally different, something way more beautiful than that box of junk that could come out of it. It's just gonna take time, it's gonna take work. A lot of churches, a lot of people, a lot of leaders, a lot of congregations don't have the time, the energy, or the willingness to do the work to make the piano out of the box of junk. Are you with me? Okay. By the way, this is not me saying Kanoi is a box of junk. Okay, hear that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I don't want us to be this. I wanna protect us against this, okay? How is church culture formed? That's the next thing I want to talk about this morning, really, really briefly. It's kind of a no-duh thing, but if I don't talk about it, I think it goes unsaid, and I think it's important. The, the way that church culture is formed is first by church leaders. Church leaders have the very first voice in forming church culture, and a church leader is anybody that's perceived to be a leader. It's not just the person who's up here at the pulpit. So a church leader would be, yes, the pastor who's doing the teaching, but it's anybody who's up here. People that are up here are also perceived to be church leaders. It's also elders, it's deacons, it's people who are Sunday school teachers, it's people who lead our children's ministry, it's anybody who's a congregation member who might be an elder of the church who's been around for a long time, has a strong personality, who's very opinionated, they are a leader in the church as well. Church leaders are people who are perceived to be church leaders. Church leaders have the first voice in forming and telling the narrative and the culture of the church, okay? They do it not just with their voice and their words, but they do it by the lifestyle, by the, by the things that they do with their life, okay? Now, this is an interesting thing because human beings don't just teach with their words, they teach with their bodies. This thing called do as I say, not as I, okay. So even if I stand up here and give you all the right things with my mouth, and you see me when I leave, I might do something different, right? So I pass that on to you, and I give you all the correct theology from this podium, and then we go out in the community, and you observe me doing something entirely different than what I just gave you from the podium. You learn that in this place, we say the right things, and out there, we do something different, 
Well, that's part of the church culture that we form at Kanoi. And you learn it, and then you guys pass it on to each other, and you pass it on to your children, and then when a newcomer walks in that door, you pass it on to them, okay? You circulate it among yourselves, and then the leaders of the church watch you, hear you, and it informs what the leaders of the church teach you back. It's a cycle. We teach, you teach, we teach. But don't think of it as a flat cycle. Think of it as a slinky, a stretched out slinky, right? It's this. And it goes on and on and on and on until we fall right off the platform, okay? That used to be longer or wider. <laughs> I made it skinnier. Um, so leaders teach, congregation teaches, Congregation teaches each other, congregation teaches the children, congregation teaches newcomers, congregation teaches the leaders, and the leaders teach again, okay? That is how church culture forms. And here's the thing that we have to know. A solid, solid um, culture is almost irresistible. A solid culture is almost irresistible. And I want you to notice something. I didn't say a toxic culture or a tove culture. Tove is the word for good, remember. A solid culture is almost irresistible. It can be toxic or it can be tove. A solid culture is almost irresistible. Now I want to read to you a, um, a what's the word I'm looking for? Testimony, that's the word, uh, from a person who worked in a church and worked for somebody who was a toxic leader. And what they saw happening around them and how then they took that in and passed that on. This is what they said. While working for a church in a large metropolitan area, I routinely saw others on staff treated meanly and harshly by the lead minister and others in his good graces. Staff members were often pitted against each other, creating jealousy and unhealthy competition instead of unity, teamwork, and brotherhood. It was a way to keep everyone off balance, insecure, striving to avoid getting on the lead minister's bad list. People were mostly motivated out of fear. So what did I do when I initially saw the abuse on staff? I was shocked. I was glad it wasn't me. I rationalized that this ridiculous behavior must be what real discipleship is all about. I trusted the leadership that this type of training was what it took to become an effective minister. I thought these people somehow deserved this mistreatment, and I was afraid that if I objected, I would be next. Worse, I started to imitate this behavior. Once our house church group was playing volleyball in an apartment complex, I let one of the guys borrow my sunglasses after it got dark. He had put them down somewhere and he couldn't find them anymore. He came and told me, and though it was pitch dark out on a late weeknight, I harshly told him, go find them. Another time, our group had a picnic. One of the young women in the group playfully tossed some ice down my back, and I took it as evidence she wasn't giving me the respect I was due as the leader, so I scolded and belittled her in front of everybody. I'm not blaming, her, uh, blaming others for what I did, but the culture of abuse just has a way of expanding. I learned it, I practiced it, and then I passed it on to others. Just hear that last line again. I learned it, I practiced it, and then I passed it on to others. A rooted culture, a solid culture, a strong culture, whether it's toxic or tove, is almost irresistible, okay? A strong culture is almost irresistible. We don't want a toxic culture, we want a tove culture, a good culture. We want that to be the culture that's irresistible 
at Kanoi. Andy Crouch is a, is a pastor. He's a well-known pastor. Andy Crouch was a pastor at Willow Creek at one point. Uh, he's not anymore. Um, he wrote a book called Culture Making. It's an excellent book. He talks about how to create culture. And he says that we don't think ourselves into new ways of behaving. We don't think, oh, I want to behave in a new way. And so we do it. He says culture helps us behave our ways into new ways of thinking. We have to be around people who live differently. And when we're around people who live differently, we live differently. And when we live differently, we think differently, okay? Culture helps us think differently. That's an important thing for us to know. So if we are going to live differently, then we need to be in a culture that is different. So if we're in a toxic culture, we're gonna live toxically. If we're in a tove culture, then we're going to live more tove-like. Does that make sense? Okay. If we find ourselves in a toxic church, we are going to find ourselves making toxic choices and we're going to rationalize that those things are okay. Just like the guy giving testimony did. I'm in a toxic church and so I start to rationalize that what I'm seeing the senior pastor do to these other staff members, well, that's okay. That must be what good discipleship is about. It's not. Good discipleship doesn't pit staff members against each other. Good discipleship doesn't mean you should fear going to your senior pastor with something. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. That's toxic, okay? So if we want to behave in a Tove way, we need to be in a Tove culture. That is why it is so important for us to make sure that Kanoi is a Tove place, a good place, has a culture of Toveness. Now, going into our second to last spot, we're going into You're So Vain. I wanna talk about narcissism. Anybody ever heard of narcissism before? Good, a couple people. Um, here's the weird thing. Narcissism, church leadership attracts narcissists. And I get how ironic it is to be the church leader and be the one up here saying that. There are studies being done on why it is that church leadership attracts narcissists. I don't know why, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Before we get into the why of it, let's get into the what of it. What is narcissism? For those of you who've never heard of narcissism, there's an old Greek myth about a hunter named Narcissus. Narcissus was well known for his beauty. I don't know about you, but I don't think about hunters and their beauty. But Narcissus was a beautiful hunter. Narcissus was so beautiful, he rejected all romantic advances on him. He thought he was too beautiful for any of the women who tried to romantically come after him. One day while hunting, Narcissus walked by a pool of water, caught his reflection, and fell madly in love with his reflection. So he knelt down by the pool of water, and he stayed by the pool of water looking at his reflection until he died. That is the story. That's Narcissus, okay? Narcissus was so in love with himself, all right? That is where we get the, the term narcissist. Uh, today, narcissistic personality disorder is a diagnosable mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention, and admiration, they have troubled relationships, they have a lack of empathy for others. Behind a mask of extreme confidence is a fragile self-esteem that is vulnerable to the slightest criticism. This is important to, to get. Narcissistic pastors tend to gravitate 
towards non-denominational churches or non-accountable church structures where they, they answer to no one. They prefer it that way, okay? So like I said before, remember, lack of accountability is a problem. So a lot of, a lot of our non-denominational or what we would call evangelical churches that are, are large churches don't have an accountability structure built into them. Um, and so if you're the top dog in some of those churches, that's it. It's kind of, it's like a business CEO sort of thing. And so if you're the CEO of a business, you're sort of the top dog of that business. Um, Ronald N. Roth is an expert on dis- dysfunctional churches and pastors, and he's done a lot of statistical analysis of these things, done some writing of it on them. He says, they operate a one-man spiritual show, or one woman, but generally they're men, so it's pretty rare to find a narcissistic woman leader in church. But benefit of a doubt, I suppose. Um, They operate a one-man or one-woman spiritual show. God help the person who gets in the way or makes waves. Praising a narcissist church is the same as praising the pastor himself. And so a narcissist who is in charge of a large or, or small, can be a small church too, um, some of these independent Baptist churches are pulpit to this because they're all these, they're independent. They're not connected to one another whatsoever. There's no church structure with them. Um, they have complete and total authority. They can guide the church in any direction they want. They have total authority over the funds of the church. Um, they can decide who is in, who is out, who is excommunicated from the church. Um, as terms of the theology of the church, it's their decision as to what the church believes or doesn't believe. Um, but when you praise the church, you're praising the narcissist. Uh, and that's exactly what they need. That's the fuel for the narcissist is the praise that they get. So now I want to talk about Willow Creek for a second. So Willow Creek, again, is this large, massive church that uh, is out in Chicago. Bill Hybels is the, the lead pastor out there. He's the senior pastor. Um, and they would do this performance review every year, as a large church should do, and they would release a governance report. And so this is something that I'm I'm reading to you from what they released. Historically, annual performance reviews have been a painful process for the elders because of the senior pastor's defensive outbursts. The board improved the process to make it go smoother and include feedback from all his direct reports and all lead pastors Unfortunately, leadership staff were warned by their peers not to give any negative feedback that could be traceable back to them for fear of repercussions from the senior pastor. All right, so you catch that? Don't give any negative feedback to the senior pastor that can be traced back to you because of repercussions, okay? So you're worried that anything you say that's negative is gonna come back on you, all right? As a result, most of the negative feedback was offered in a generic way. Some negative feedback was asked to be softened at the request of some board members, believing the repercussion would not be worth it. So even the accountability structure that's in place over the senior pastor, which is the church board, still goes to the staff and asks them to soften some of their negative feedback because the repercussions would not be worth it. So even the accountability structure that's in place isn't true accountability. Again, there's many problems there. For a narcissist, it's all about control, okay? Controlling the narrative, controlling the negativity, that is the problem. Now, 
Here's what I'm going to do. I'm closing us in this idea of control this morning, okay? I know this stuff is heavy. <coughs> Excuse me. But if we don't take the time to talk about this stuff, it's possible that someday you're in another church or in this church, God forbid, and you don't recognize what's happening before it's happening, all right? And that's what I don't want to see. Um, my concern is that this stuff is so prevalent And, uh, and we're not even talking about things that are of sexual abuse nature. We're talking about leadership abuse right now today. You know, we, I, I kind of grazed the surface last week with the sexual abuse stuff. This stuff is all over the place. My concern is if we don't talk about it, you won't see it. My concern is I've had friends who have been abused and it was, it's too late. Now they have a lifetime of working through that. My concern is that somehow I have friends who have fallen into the trap of being the abuser as well. And now it's too late because now they have a lifetime of being that person as well. So we have to talk about it. I know it's not fun. I get it. But at this church, we have no other method to talk about this. I could do a Sunday school class, but most of you wouldn't come. And I could do a Sunday evening thing, but most of you wouldn't come. And I get that, and that's why we're doing it on a Sunday morning. And that's nothing against you guys. It's that I know I have most of you on a Sunday morning. And most of you need to hear this. You just don't know you need to hear it. I'm sorry. It's not fun. I get it. But give me a month, and as much as it's not fun to talk about, you need to hear it, and you're going to be glad someday that you heard it, because someday it's your grandchild that you're going to hear something from, and you're going to go, whoa. That sounds a whole lot like, and I'm really glad that we talked about that a couple years ago, and now I recognize that that sounds like grooming or that sounds like something, and I'm gonna bring that to attention, okay? Now, this piece that I'm gonna talk about right now is a really important piece for church because this is what the front of your bulletin says, when biblical isn't biblical. It's the subtitle to your message today. Um, And this is hard to explain. Maybe it's not so hard to explain. I feel like it's hard to explain. Maybe it's not. I said that already. <laughs> when, when somebody came to Jesus and said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God. And then he said, and the second is like it, neighbors yourself. And he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, right? Okay. And when Jesus said that, what he meant was that um, all of the Old Testament, essentially, what we call the Old Testament, hung on those two things. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. And, and essentially, too, all that Jesus was going to teach hung on those two things. Okay? So if you had to boil it down to two things. That's essentially what Jesus was being asked. You had to boil it down to two things. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. If you did those two things, you're gonna get everything else okay, right? If, if you had to follow something else that Jesus was teaching, 
and following that other thing was going to lead you to not love God and not love your neighbor, you're not doing this other thing right. Does that make sense? Okay. Anybody not understand what I just said? If Jesus tells you to get your sheep that fell into a hole out and somehow getting your sheep out of that hole was gonna make you not love God or not love your neighbor, then getting the sheep out of the hole was you're not doing it right, okay? Okay, all right. In multiple cases, in, hist- in stories of church abuse, specifically stories of, of sexual abuse, churches, including churches like Willow Creek, would use scripture to um, stop victims of abuse from accusing the pastors of inappropriate conduct. One such scripture that was used was 1 Timothy 5.19. Now, you remember the beginning of the sermon, I said 1 Timothy was one of these pastoral epistles, one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy to say this is how you are a leader in the church. It says this, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. That's what that verse says. Do not entertain an elder, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Now, we'll put aside the fact that in the Willow Creek situation, there were plenty of witnesses that brought forward accusations, so the two or three thing, that was met. No problem. But let's, let's talk about just a variety of these examples out there. In, when the time when this was written by Paul, this was written in, let's say, 70 AD, in a Jewish community. In a Jewish community in 70 AD, the idea of two or three witnesses was a legal concept in order to bring a case forward. You needed to have two or three witnesses to make it a viable case. We don't live in Ephesus in 70 AD in a Jewish community. That's a, that's a simple truth. We all know that, okay? It's, it's 2,000 years later. Sexual harassment and sexual abuse don't usually happen in the presence of a witness. That's just the other honest truth. Um, Youth pastor Andy Savage didn't have a sexual incident with a 17-year-old girl in his youth group in the middle of a Bible study when there were 30 kids sitting around a circle. He had that when he was giving a ride home to her on a deserted country road when she thought she was safe. There were no witnesses. If we needed to wait for two or three witnesses to check off our First Timothy box before we talk to somebody on a church board about our concerns, if that happened in our church, then we're being irresponsible, okay? We're also being illegal. In today's world, there's something called mandated reporting. A long time ago, before the Sandusky incident, when when you had to report something that happened, you told your supervisor, and your supervisor was responsible for reporting it. Now, I'm a mandated reporter. Any volunteer in children's ministry is a mandated reporter. Uh, if you're paid to, to do any sort of child work, you are a mandated reporter, which means that you have to legally report any suspicion or any confirmed case of it or anything you observe. You have to report it, or you can be prosecuted. Okay? So it's illegal, one, to not do it, but two, it would be entirely unbiblical 
It would be against Jesus's call to love God and love your neighbor to not report your suspicion of something happening because a Bible verse called for two or three witnesses. Are you with me? So when biblical isn't biblical, that would be a perfect case of that, okay? It was, it was silly for Willow Creek to use that as a verse to say, you're not doing this right. That's deflection. We're deflecting from what happened to try and get you to not pay attention. That's what that is. And unfortunately, many churches do that. They use that verse as one of the ways to do it. One of the other ones that uses Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is when Jesus talked about how to handle conflict resolution, this was what he talked about. And Jesus said, when you have a conflict with somebody, go to that person and work it out, which is a good idea. If we have a fight, we should talk to each other. Because in the world we live in, the thing that we do most of the time is you go talk to everybody else and I go talk to everybody else, but we never talk to each other about the problem we have with each other, right? So we should talk to each other and work the problem out, right? Okay, unless there's sexual abuse involved. Because a sexually abused person should never confront their, their abuser alone, ever. But Willow Creek and other churches have used that verse to say that the way that these things have come out was done in an unbiblical manner. They said this is not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is that you should have gone right to the person who did this. I'm sorry, that is incorrect. That is absolutely incorrect and that goes against Jesus' call to love. That goes against Jesus' direction to love the most marginalized and hurting people that are on this earth. Jesus' life was loving the marginalized and hurting people, and the most marginalized and hurting people are definitely the victims of abuse. Even if that abuse hasn't been corroborated yet, we still need to love them. A church with a toxic culture will seek to protect itself, and it will use everything at its disposal to do so. It will use its connections with people, it will use its power, it will use its money, it will use its Bible verses if it has to. Toxic culture does not care for victims. Toxic culture protects its power. So the next time that you see one of these scandals coming out somewhere, pray, number one, pray. But follow along and watch. Watch how the church responds. Follow what the church is doing. Is the church protecting its power or is the church caring for the victim? Follow along and see what happens because you will see very quickly, is this a church with Tove at the center or is this a church with toxicity at the center? A Tove church will pursue the truth. A Tove church will not make assumptions. A Tove church will suspend the accused so that if the accusation is true, there is no chance that the accused is in a position to continue the abuse. A Tove church will use a third party to investigate the accusation, so there is, a no, there is no chance that it, there is an allegation of impropriety or favoritism. A Tove church will remain caring to the victim a Tove church will remain caring to all of the people involved while pursuing truth with wisdom. A Tove church will never let scripture be used to deflect attention away from what's happening. 
The next time you see this, and you will, you will see it again and you will see it soon. Follow along and determine if the church that you're watching is a Tove church or a toxic church. Friends, there is a hopefully a long road ahead of Kanoi Church. A long road for us to develop a culture that is Tove, a culture that is good. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He separated the light from the dark, and he said, this is good. This is Tov. Then God called a people. He set apart a man named Abram. He said, I'm going to make you a people. That is Tov. I will give you a message, and I will bless you to bless others around the world. Through you, I will bless the world. This is a message of Tov. Through those people, he cultivated an entire world. He laid the foundations to his church, to his ecclesia. And that church is supposed to be a beacon of light, a beacon of tov, of good. We are the bride of Christ. That bride in many places has been given a black eye. But this doesn't have to be one of those places. Because out of a mess, there is still beauty. I believe that wholeheartedly. This is not Kanoi. This is. This is. And when people come to a place like this, expecting that, but finding this, this gives hope. This can be a place that gives hope. When you go to your red dot, interacting with that corner market, the grocery store, that neighbor, the person in need, whoever that might be, and you are this, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, when they expect this, you give hope. And when they expect to get to know you and they expect that underneath all of the things that you say that they're gonna find out as they scratch the surface that there's still gonna be this and they find this, you still give hope. And they, you scratch the surface a little bit more and they think, oh, they're gonna be like every other Christian I ever met, condemning. They're gonna find out this next thing about me and they're gonna hate me that much more and they're gonna expect this, but they find this, you're gonna give hope. Let us be a church, a community, a people that is tove. We can be this. We are this. You are this. The story always began with tove. We have been told for too long that the story began with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But I don't know about you, but my Bible begins with a 1, not a 3. It began in a garden where God made the world and said, this is good. Where God made man and he said, this is good. The story is good. You were made this way. Don't forget it. You go back to your red dot and you share that good news. And when you come to this place and you bring the people at your red dot to this place, then we be a beacon of hope. We be the sort of hope that they can, they're not, it's not this. That's good news. The bride of Christ is not this thing. The bride of Christ is this thing. We get to make music together with this thing. And that music we get to take back to our red dots to our families, to our friends, 
to the people who have been hurt. That, that is the message of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Tov. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.